morning, good afternoon, good evening. Today's guest is Sabina Nuwaz, and she is a global CEO coach who advises C-level executives in Fortune 500 corporations, government, nonprofits, and academic institutions, and she does it in over 26 countries. Now, she shares with us in our conversation her leap from the field of computer science to executive development. She talks about, from a leadership perspective, on taking chances on hiring people who aren't an obvious match for the job, and along with that, why job descriptions are generally just works of fiction. She also talks about how perfection is holding all of us back in our career and the importance of creating blank space in, in our lives for thinking and also why compassion requires courage and, and much, much more. So this is a, a great episode. We compress a lot of ideas and information into 30, 35 minutes or so. And so I'm excited to share it with you here. Now, a couple of recent episodes I want to mention. Uh, last episode, Karen Catlin, who is a former tech executive and is now a leadership coach, and she's also an advocate for inclusive workspaces. And so she answers the questions, how do you become even more inclusive as a leader? How can you be a better ally and better mentor for others? How do you navigate your career so you're seen as a team player, but don't get pigeonholed into lesser jobs? How do you advocate for yourself? And so I love this episode because she takes a really complicated issue and makes it a little more straightforward and offers practical approaches on how we, any of us, all of us can help make the workplace even more inclusive, regardless of where we are in our career. And then in what has quickly become a top five episode for Imperfect Action, Tuomas Ranakari, who is a musician and ethnomusicologist, he returns to the show for the third time to discuss uncertainty. It seemed fitting for, for these times, but he talks about not just dealing with uncertainty, but really even befriending it, welcoming uncertainty into our lives. And so that's a different perspective, and I love his take on it. He also leads us in an exercise to help us get quiet and seek out inspiration by actively not doing, which ties in a bit to what Sabina was talking about with creating blank space. And as a traveling musician, touring musician, you know, he spends much of his life in airplanes and tour buses. And so he talks about handling the conflict from that can come from being in close quarters, which also seems really fitting as a lot of us now are in close quarters, uh, quarantined, or at least isolating ourselves, uh, actually, you know, in many, many countries around the world. And so great episode. Like I say, this is one of the most popular we've had so far, and I think you'll enjoy it too, if you haven't heard it already. So anyway, it's time to play bigger, do better, move the world. Let's get started. Welcome to Imperfect Action. This is Brock Edwards. We're on take two already, so we've already got some imperfection going on. And my guest today is Sabina Nawaz. And hopefully I pronounced your last name correctly, uh, Sabina. Um, so correct me if I didn't and tell us a little bit about yourself. Brock, I love how you walk your talk right from the beginning. And yes, you nailed it. That's fine. Thank you for having me on your show. I'm really excited with our pre-show conversation to talk to you and your listeners. A little bit about myself, my, I'm on my second career. I coach CEOs and senior executives on how to be better executives and manage their organizations. I also do a lot of leadership training, 
speak at conferences as a keynote speaker, and write about leadership for Harvard Business Review, Forbes, Thrive Global, Inc., etc. I so came into this work in a very untraditional way because my undergraduate and graduate degrees are in computer science, electronics, and computer systems engineering. I started my career at Microsoft in software development and did that for over nine years before I switched into this line of work, first at Microsoft and then on my own. All right. So tell me a little bit about that journey. So, you, I mean, you're doing computers and you wake up one day and say, hey, I'm going to be an executive coach. <laughs> Doesn't I'm everybody do that? <laughs> I'm guessing there were a few steps in between there. <laughs> well, at Microsoft, we used to get a sabbatical, which was eight weeks of time to do nothing if you wanted to or do something else, not work related. My MO usually was to triple book myself, except this time I didn't. And I had about half the time at least to sit on the couch and eat bonbons. And as happens when you sit on the couch and eat bonbons is suddenly different parts of your brain start to fire and you start to think about things that you didn't really think about or set out to think about. One of those thoughts for me was crystal clear clarity that it was no longer a matter of if but when I would become a corporate vice president in my company. That had been my career aspiration. As you can imagine, there's not a lot of women in high tech. Uh, I was one of the more senior women already in the, in the company and so on. However, what uh, happened right after was the big surprise, the big anticlimax. Even though this is the path I had been on, when I realized that I could achieve it, it seemed pointless. Why should I spend the next five years of my life becoming something that I already know the formula to? It seemed boring. And so then I started thinking about, shoot, what do I do with myself? And uh, took to heart feedback that some people had given me about people skills. And there, were, there was also feedback from some other people that I didn't have good people skills. But for the most part, people thought I, had, I was skilled there. I also loved public speaking and had uh, been on national radio where I grew up in India at the age of, uh, I think, sixth grade, something like that. Uh, been on national television, et cetera, debate, drama, all that kind of stuff. And so I looked at what was available at Microsoft and to the credit of the hiring manager and the company, they were willing to take a bet on me without formal education to switch careers and run all of the employee management and executive development programs in the company, as well as the succession planning process for the company. So that took me on a very different career path. I was not sure that's what I was going to do and like it, but I had a uh, warm welcome back from my manager who I was just leaving on the technology side anytime I wanted. So it was a very good safety net to be able to take that bet. And I did that work at Microsoft for almost six years before I went, ventured out on my own. Now, that's, that's a little bit of a change. I mean, yeah, like, so you said, you know, you didn't wake up one day. The, the, it came over time, but that's still a, a huge jump, even with the soft landing. And I, I, I guess I'm, I'm a little curious about, so you had been on this path to be a VP and then realized that as you get there, you already know how to get there. So 
I guess it's almost like you've hit the goal. That's just, you're, you're just kind of going through the motions after that point. So you switch over to something totally different for you. What was the biggest challenge in that transition? Wow. Uh, it was, it was wonderful for the most part. So I'm having to think about what was challenging. I, I came in, I actually told the hiring manager, I said, I'm not sure I'm going to last here. I, I feel kind of burned out. I've got other stuff going on. I might leave in the next three weeks. And to her credit, she said, I'll hire you for three weeks. <laughs> and by the end of six months, I couldn't believe I was getting paid to do this job. Challenges, there were a lot of challenges. It was exhilarating. And I did not have any formal training. So it was first learning how to do some of this in, in a more methodical, more conscious way. Fortunately for me, my team was packed with very talented professionals. And when I would speak in the front of the room, I'd ask them to be in the back of the room and give me really candid feedback. It was also different switching from working with engineers to working with my HR colleagues. It was a whole different culture. So adjusting to that and trying to understand how to make processes stick over time. For example, our program to develop our high potentials was something that frequently got redesigned and hadn't really quite hit its stride in many different ways. Instead of jumping to a solution, which is what I did my first year, I had to learn how to slow things down, how to really truly collaborate with my colleagues across HR to build something that worked for everybody globally, instead of just Sabina's idea of the day. So a lot of it was about learning how to collaborate in a field that I was learning while doing and also gaining formal training on the side on and doing it in a completely different culture or a very different culture. So I'm just, you must be a tremendous negotiator, Sabina, because I'm just trying to imagine that conversation of, hey, I'm not qualified for the job and I'm kind of burnt out, so I'm probably not going to be around anyway. Um, <laughs> and then they go, perfect, you're hired. <laughs> just who we're looking for. I, yeah, exactly. I didn't really negotiate, Brock. <laughs> in fact, yes, quite the opposite. And I was very, very lucky to be in a company that was willing to take a bet on somebody without that formal training. Now, I had a good track record of being a great performer. My hiring manager had actually seen me speak at a conference not that long ago. We had had a great connection there. And things like that, but yes, <laughs> I got lucky. Well, so let, let's look at that from the flip side. Since you coach executives on this, what advice do you give to executives on taking a chance on people? Wow, that's a that's a great question. Yes, because it, it's about embracing messiness, Brock. It's it's uh, similar to what you talk about in terms of imperfect action. So really look at, firstly, job descriptions are works of fiction. They're works of fairy tales. They're works of rainbows and unicorns. And they should be because who knows, maybe we do get that perfect candidate who meets all of those requirements. The reality looks very different from the job description. 
One, because we can never find somebody who, who rings all the bells for us that are there in the job description. Usually they're more, instead of being that well-rounded, they're more pointy. Their, their strengths are so great in some areas that it offsets the need for some of the other areas. And secondly, by the time you put out the job description, do the interviews, get somebody and onboard them, the world has changed. And we might need something very different. So I encourage people to look for characteristics that are more evergreen than the immediate need and also not look for the perfect candidate. What is it that you're really looking for? Would you rather, I had somebody, uh, when I was running an organization in the te software testing group, there was a role that was the, one of the more junior roles in the organization. We needed somebody who was really reliable, who did not make mistakes often, who was going to do the same task over and over again every single day and could be counted on doing that almost mechanically, but it was a manual task. And the question I had with the recruiter once was, who would I rather have in that job? Should I get somebody who's going to be a very steady Eddie, as we say in the US, and stay in that job for five years? Or should I get somebody who's an up and coming, has a ton of headroom to keep progressing from that junior role to successively more senior roles, or even leave my organization? And I always pivoted towards the latter because I wanted someone who wanted to continue to work on, who didn't say I'm done. Because what I found from that is that even in that job where you think the expectations are lower, the, the, the pay grade is lower, whatever you might call it, even in that job, there was tremendous room I found for innovation, for improvement, for automation, when I hired the right kind of people. And yes, I did have the painful task of having to rehire into that role every 18 to 24 months, but I also had tremendous pride, tremendous satisfaction for watching the careers of these people who went on to other parts of the organization where we became peers and colleagues over the years to think this is where they got their start in their career. Now that's a little bit of a different approach than many managers. And you know, from my experience, I, I tend to see, a, you know, it's probably an oversimplification to you know break the world up into two types of managers, but there is that group like, like you, you mentioned where there is pride in the person moving on, whether it's within that organization or another organization. And then the, the, there's, it seems to be almost just the, you know, um, the, you know, the opposite where it's more of, you know, that's almost seen as being disloyal and, you know, they don't want them to, to move on or move away because they don't want to have to rehire. Mm -hmm. So for you, what, what were the advantages other, I mean, you mentioned pride, you know, it's great to see the people that, that you've mentored succeed, mm -hmm. but from an organizational perspective, what did you find to be the advantages of those people who could come in and do a great job for 18 to 24 months and then you were probably replacing them versus someone who, you know, you knew yeah. was going to be there for the next decade? It was their level of motivation. 
I, for the time that I worked in the test organization, test wasn't as glorious as being in the development organization. And many people came into test as a stepping stone to go into development. And there were some uh, test managers who would say, I don't want to hire somebody who wants to be a developer. Whereas I thought, wait a minute, I'm letting go of this huge hiring pool when I say that. What if I get somebody who ultimately wants to become a developer and make a deal with them? This is where negotiation did came into play, where we might say, gosh, your goal is to become a developer. This is the perfect training ground for you. You're going to become a way better developer if you start out as a tester. And here's what I want from you in return. I am not going to hold you back. In fact, the opposite. I will even help connect you to different development organizations. I will help you get the professional development you need. And your on-the-job training opportunities are going to be tremendous. What I want from you in return is somewhere between 18 to 24 months before you leave. Because it would be a pain for me to have to recruit, re-recruit in six months just as I've got you up to speed. So if we have that deal, I'm good with you leaving. In fact, go for it if that's where you want to go. If somebody is loose in the socket, I don't want to hang on to them. They're going to burn the fuse or whatever the right metaphor is. I think I just messed that up. <laughs> you know, hey, we're talking about imperfection here. That's right. So I, I, and everyone has different desires and goals. I'd rather they're transparent with me and let me know that instead of moving covertly anyhow in two years. If they just gave me a whole crock about, oh, test is what I'm built for and I'm born to do and I'm going to do this till I die, and then I don't plan on uh, keeping my recruiting pool handy, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a nasty surprise. So I'd much rather do that. Also, what I found, which surprised the heck out of me, Brock, is that there were some people who left and came back. And they came back because they said, I thought I wanted to go into development, but I actually really enjoy what I do in test. Mm. By loosening the reins, you get back the people who really want to come back. You mentioned something, and it underscores everything that we've been talking about here, Sabina, which is you mentioned embracing messiness. And so, you know, there's a little bit of messiness in just what you're talking about there, but Let's take that a little bit further. When you say that, what do you mean by that from, you know, just a philosophical level? Mm. <laughs> you ask tough questions, bro. <laughs> mm. For me, it's, it's realizing that the thing we all have in common is the human condition. And one of the characteristics of the human condition is imperfection. Look, nobody wakes up in the morning going, I want to be imperfect today. I want to mess things up. At least I don't think most people do that. Most people wake up saying, I want to do a really bang up job. I want to do a great job. I want to be liked by people. I want to show up as smart, competent, hardworking, ethical. And yet, that's not how we're always perceived. And after years of working in the leadership field and the human side of things, I've learned that no matter what we do, no matter the best, the most bestest self we bring forward, somebody is not going to like that. 
it's not going to land right for everybody. You're not going to be universally beloved. You're not going to be 100% correct. So the sooner we can accept that, we can shift our energy from being overly perfect to being in the moment, to being our best, and letting the rest take care of itself and letting go of some of that. Because when we get hooked into pleasing other people, going out of our way to pleasing other people or going out of our way to be perfect, paradoxically, that backfires. And why is that? Well, let's take an example. Let's say that uh, actually somebody I, I've worked with, mm, let's call them Sue. And Sue is a perfectionist. And she spends for something, if her boss asks her to create a presentation and her boss thinks it's going to take an hour, we know in reality that that'll probably take an hour and a half to two. And Sue spends about six hours on that. Not because she's procrastinating or anything else. She's working super hard till midnight, till 1 a.m., 2 a.m., perfecting every tiny bit of it. So what's lost to Sue when she's doing that? What do you think, Brock? This is a question to you. What do you think she's losing? Well, I can think of a, a couple things, um, and I don't know if it's what you're thinking of, but you know, so first off, she, she's losing time. <laughs> you know, it's ta- taking an yeah. m- immense amount of time without any perceived benefit. Because mm-hmm. um, assuming her boss wanted it done in you know hour, hour and a half, they were probably expecting about an hour, hour and a half level of quality versus six to eight hours level of quality. Right. right. And I can also imagine Sue at some point getting very frustrated and feeling underappreciated because of all the work that she puts in that honestly no one else knows about, but she knows about it and, and not appreciating that all the, all that she's done. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You're so perceptive, bro. And that's why you do what you do, I know. Uh, Exactly. I mean, she's losing sleep. She's losing time. And she actually felt very appreciated by her manager. Her manager was super, super appreciative of her. But here's how it came out. She felt like a martyr relative to her peers and ended up getting quite snitty and snarky with her peers because their quality never met her bar. And she thought, "How how come they get away with all of this stuff? And why are they not putting in more time? So she started appearing kind of um, condescending uh, with a sense of superiority to them. It's not that she was wrong. Of course, her work was better than theirs because she was putting in way more than time than she should have. And she was correct about the inconsistencies in their work, the discrepancies in their work. But did it really matter? So first... Her energy is getting torn from two sides, lack of sleep, as well as all this uh, rub, all this tension with her peers. And second, she's stuck in her job and not moving forward in her career. Why? Because she's doing such a bang up job. She's so great. Her boss, firstly, will never want to lose her. And secondly, she doesn't take the time to work on the strategic projects because she's busy fixing every single period, comma, and semicolon. 
So uh, along those lines, then you had mentioned something before we started recording and it was a very short phrase. It was just do less better. Mm-hmm. So your advice to her would be do less, but probably not better since she was already going for perfection. So in, in your world, what, what does that mean to you? <laughs> well, this is a phrase that I learned from one of my coaching clients. And to me, do less better means mm, the action that you take, when you talk about imperfect action and that being better than perfect inaction, it's not just jumping to action with everything. It's jumping to action with the few things that really matter so you have the space to do them better. In her case, doing them better actually meant not doing that thing better, that's that presentation. It meant doing some of the strategic work better. It's, and so if I were to put a twist to your phrase, there, there is a kind of perfect inaction that is actually brilliant. It's not the perfect inaction that you're talking about where I might be gazing at my belly button, sitting in analysis paralysis, or beating myself up about how terrible I am and what are all my faults and I couldn't possibly do this other thing well enough to do it. What I talk about perfect inaction is a phrase called white space, which is taking the time to sit and reflect, taking the time to think. When I had that crystal clear realization about the shift in my career, that wouldn't have happened if I had booked 15 vacations during my eight-week sabbatical. It happened because I was in those moments of perfect inaction where I was, quote-unquote, doing nothing. Research shows that some of our best insights come from, and this won't be a surprise to you, in the shower, when we're driving, when we're running. In other words, when our brains aren't actively engaged in answering email, sitting in meetings we don't need to sit in, or perfecting that PowerPoint slide to death. So perfect inaction to me is giving yourself the space before jumping into action to discern which action you want to take, which is the one that's important enough for you to spend your precious life on. It also creates much greater productivity and better quality work than if you didn't. So Sabina, how do we balance that out? Uh, And what I mean by balance it out is that, so on one hand, we we are rewarded for creating results. we're, We're expected to take action. On the other hand, as you mentioned, some of the best ideas, the best innovations, the the best changes to our action come in those weird off moments when we're not really thinking about anything or we've, you know, our brain's distracted. We're not, we don't look like we're doing work. So both are needed. Um, Is there a way to, to balance those or how do you approach that? So, you know, you're still getting stuff done, but you are taking those moments to really reflect. There is, that's such a great question, Brock. Uh, there are two answers I'm going to give you. One is philosophical and, well, it's born by evidence uh, from what my clients do and what I do, which is when we 
take that time, we actually produce more results and better results and the more important results afterward. Just take the last two weeks. We've all experienced a new normal, well, for the last several weeks. But over the last two weeks, to give you a snapshot, like many people, I'm very fortunate uh, in people I work with. I'm very fortunate to have food security, home security, uh, a loving family, a space to do my video calls without being disturbed, etc. And my emotions have gone up and down. There are days I just feel like I cannot function. I'm flayed. I feel completely useless. And I know it's because of what we're going through right now. This weekend was an example of that. I didn't do anything uh, other than feed my face and <laughs> take naps and walk the dogs, things like that. And similarly, a couple of days, at least two other days over the last couple of weeks. So you could say I took at least four days completely off during the last couple of weeks. And in the last couple of weeks, I have coached and had clients meetings probably, oh gosh, um, um, more than 50 meetings. I have run two offsites virtually. Uh, done. This is my fourth po podcast in the last two weeks. I've written two articles that have been published on Harvard Business Review, two on Thrive Global, and one on Forbes. Those articles would not have been possible if I had forced myself to just push through because my brain just wasn't firing in that direction at that moment. But I attribute my writing productivity, which was unusual to get that many yielded in two weeks, absolutely to four days of doing nothing. So the doing nothing actually produces a lot more than if I uh, just had kept going at that point. Tactically speaking, I work with people to take white space time uh, and I encourage them. So that's your being time. You're sitting in being versus doing. And so what I encourage people to do is, let's say, so white space time, what does that mean? Let me just explain that first. It's a couple of contiguous hours, not in 10 minute increments, during the work week, not the weekend, that you take where you're unplugged, you're, you don't have devices, you're not reading, and you're not talking to someone else, which is very difficult for people to do. And similar to your question, people's first concern is what will people think? that I'm not doing anything. Uh, and many people do it in secret because they're worried, they feel guilty and so on. So let's say that I convince you to take white space time and you do that from 10 to noon on a Friday, your being time, if you will. Then I recommend that people do a, a block of doing time shortly before that, say from four to 6 p.m. on Thursday, block out two hours where you knock down your inbox, you get rid of most of your to-do items or your most pressing to-do items, book that dentist appointment and whatever else might distract you during that white space time. So you balance, get the tactical stuff that we all have to do 
to function and survive done before you cleave the space for white space. It's sort of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It's, it's the white space is getting you to self-actualization. But meanwhile, we still have to get emails done and conversations happen and provide things to other people who are waiting to hear from us. When you first tell executives that, how, how do they respond? Or, or I guess the better question, because I can imagine how they respond, is how do they get out of their own way to really embrace it and try it? <laughs> yes. Uh, for, yeah, one of the initial reactions is almost panic. Like, so, so uh, what am I going to be doing during this time? You mean, really, you, you, you think I shouldn't even bring my computer with me? No, you shouldn't. So first there's that panic. But getting out of their way, uh, we do a, a number of things. And one is start small. So work your way up to the two hours if, you, if it's just way too much. Like some people just ha- have not, it's not a muscle they've exercised. And it's the equivalent of asking them to run a marathon. Some people can take it on and go, yes, I'm going to just start with the two hours. But start in small chunks. So first thing could be if you, let's say you drive to work and on your commute, you've got two phone calls that you take. Well, could you take one commute or 10 minutes of a commute and not do a phone call, not do the radio, just silence? Even that is incredibly hard for some people. So what can you do to break this down into micro habits, which is one of my articles on Harvard Business Review? How do you break it, atomicize it, make it into smaller components and do it in small pieces till you build up the muscle strength to do the full hour, uh, two hours? So that's one piece. The second piece is what support or help can you get? Many people are slinking away guiltily doing this. But could you, if you have an assistant, ask their help and tell them not to release you from this? So help save you from yourself because you're going to want to give it away. Could you share this at home and get support there? Could you share it with your team? So that would be another thing is go outside of yourself and get support. Love, love the thoughts there of enlisting other people to, uh, you know, help you not interfere with yourself, I guess. Um, well, I want to switch gears a little bit here. Uh, and it hits on something you were talking about much earlier in the conversation. Uh, I don't think you use these words then, but you had expressed them, them previously. And that's the idea that compassion requires courage. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yes. It's often when we are stressed, which is when we need the most compassion, our tendency is to judge instead of stepping back and thinking, taking a more compassionate view. And this starts with ourselves, having compassion for ourselves. The more we have compassion from ourselves, for ourselves, the more we come from a place of generosity with ourselves, the more we can be present and generous and compassionate with other people. Scarcity is a surefire way to kill your relationships. And so compassion requires courage because it's actually much easier to jump in and and make those judgments. It takes a lot of courage to say, wait a minute, maybe something else is going on here. Can I put myself in their shoes? What would be a more compassionate view of this? That requires admitting you're wrong, that it requires setting aside your ego, that requires suspending judgment 
and opening up yourself to the possibilities of other people, which might take you in a direction that you didn't want to go. So it might involve losing some control, perhaps. And so those are all the reasons why I say that compassion requires courage. Now, how, so how do we get there? Because it is easier to, uh, if not judge, at least come up with a story that fits whatever it is we're seeing. I mean, you know, that's just how our brains work. We fill in the gaps whenever we, <laughs> there's not enough information. Um, and there are certainly some people we are predisposed to be probably a little more harsh with than others. Um, how, how do we make that leap of being able to step yes. back and yes. put our ego aside and all of yes. that? And that tendency to be more harsh with uh, others can also be yourself. We tend, sometimes tend to be our own worst critics and prejudge ourselves. Three things brought. One is making up three stories instead of one. So it's human to make up stories. And I think it would be a waste of time for me to tell my clients, don't make up stories because they can't help themselves. So make up three stories. One could be the immediate story you made up. One could be one on the other end of the spectrum that has perhaps more compassion in it. And one could be somewhere in between. And just making up three stories allows us to get away from that judgmental part of our brain to the thinking part of our brain. This is so important that I even play this game called multiple meanings with my kids when they were younger and we uh, drove to school together. And we would simply learn that as a drill, like let's make up multiple meanings before we are in conflictual situations where you want to claw each other's eyeballs out. What other meanings can we make up and just learn that as a drill? So we would say, uh, we, we see that person sitting on that park bench as we're, we're going on our commute. Mm, what stories can we make up about that? Oh, it's, a, it's an anthropologist who's watching... Mm, people walk by in the park. And then one of my sons might say, well, this person may have just been fired and they don't wanna go home. They're, they're, they're gonna stay on the park bench until it's time to go home from their regular job because they, they're not ready to tell their family. And someone else might say, well, this person has a real passion for pigeons and they're feeding the pigeons in the park before going to work and they're gonna work late as a result because it's darker and there are no pigeons when they come back but make up really wild, really different, disparate, at least three different stories. So then when you're in the heat of the moment, you have more of that muscle, more of that capacity to make up three different stories. And one of them would be a more compassionate one. The, the second piece is separate out shoulds from wants. When you're beating yourself up, one way to have compassion for yourself is write down what are, what are the things you're saying you should be doing and what is it that you really want to be doing? For example, in, the, in our current situation, I've heard many people say, well, I should be learning how to play a new instrument, learn a new language, take up painting and basket weaving and have perfect chef grade meals at the table every night for my family with their three different dietary needs. Okay, those are all the things you're, you're shooting on yourself. What do you really want? Well, I actually want to spend the afternoon without video reading a book because I'm exhausted. What else do you want? Well, I want to have a meal with my family, but I want to, all, all of us to pitch in. It may not be perfect. And different people will cook different ways. 
but that way each person might be able to pitch in with something something that works for them for their taste buds and their dietary needs so separating out your shoulds and wants also increases more compassion and allows you to see where you might be shooting on yourself and uh, beating yourself up and the third piece if you're beating yourself up and want some self compassion is to channel a friend if a friend came to you and presented you with the quandary that you find yourself in what would you tell your friend because i bet you you would have a much more compassionate response to your friend than you would have for yourself nice i had never heard of multiple meanings before uh, and making up the three stories and i really like that thank um, you Years and years ago, I had heard of something called E-Prime, which is a, stands for English Prime and is basically English without the verb to be. Uh-huh. And so what it requires is you, you, you basically cannot say any absolutes. You can't say, you know, this is stupid. The, the closest you can come is this situation seems stupid to me. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And, and pulling that absolute out of it forces you really to view yeah. it as a possibility. But you've taken that a step further there with those three stories. It's not only there could be other possibilities, there is, you know, here's three of them. Yes. Um, so so I, I really, really like that. Um, anyway, the, the, the other advice was really good too, but that one <laughs> stuck, stuck with me just because I had- you, yeah. Yeah. All right. So we've covered a lot of ground here so far. Um, <laughs> I mean, we, we've talked about multiple meanings of, of perfect in action. We've talked about doing less better. We've talked about embracing messiness and now with about compassion, not only with others, but with ourselves. Um, that seems like a pretty good place to wrap up here. That's a lot for people to digest. Great. I'm glad. I'm glad that was helpful. Absolutely. So where can people find you? If they want to learn more about you, you mentioned, you know, some articles they can go track down, but uh, where's the best place for people to find you? They could, they could connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter, Sabina Nawaz, or Instagram, Sabina Coaching. Mm, uh, and the best way to keep in touch would be to sign up for my newsletter, which is roughly tw- uh, every other week, with my latest articles, or just read my articles online. Nice. Well, then I, you know, I've, I've got to end with a question because I always ask this of my guests, but <laughs> you know, so, so much of your life is really focused around helping others. I mean, that's what a, a coach does. You help pe- other people be at their best. So what would your ask be of the audience? What, what could they do for you? That is such a good question because it has taken me a long time to learn how to ask for things. <laughs> and my ask would be the following. Take one thing, Brock, you mentioned that we covered a lot of ground. If you've listened all the way up to this point, take one thing that really stood out for you, put it into practice, and then connect with me and let me know what that one thing was, because that'll be helpful feedback for me, and what did you do and what were the results? Because I can't help myself. I love helping people and I want to know what impact it had. You can get in touch with me if you want to do that by emailing me at info at All right. Fantastic. Well, Sabina, this has been a great conversation. Um, 
I really appreciate your time today and your insights here. Brock, this is wonderful talking with you, even when you were on mute. And uh, thank you for having me.